starting, my most, something I'm proud of that I accomplished. Once upon a time, there was a family. We want to take Bob on a snipe hunt. And then I fell in, and but I was able to get out. It's time for the apple seed, an hour that uses the power of great stories to help you make sense of the world and communicate with the people who are important to you. On the apple seed, great stories can change your world. I'm your host, Sam Payne, and today we're doing something a little bit different. This episode is dropping during Holy Week, leading up to Easter Sunday. It's a time when many people's thoughts are turned toward matters of faith. And in the storytelling community, the way that people express thoughts about faith is the same as the way they express thoughts about other aspects of life through the telling of stories. And the apple seed sprang originally from a storytelling culture tied to performances at storytelling festivals all over the country. And these festivals, some of them, are decades and decades old. And since they've been around, if you go to a major storytelling festival that stretches over a full weekend, it's very likely that there will be some time set aside on Sunday morning for a faith stories session. And you might think that means a morning full of stories from the Bible or the Quran or some other book of Scripture, but that's not it at all. The faith stories category is broad enough for any kind of story that the teller feels gives an expression to their ideas about faith. So today on the show, we're taking a cue from those festivals and their faith story performances. We're going to hear from Geraldine Buckley, a chaplain and storyteller, originally from England, who now calls Frederick Maryland home. She tells us about Connie, a woman with an extraordinary power to move people with her dancing. Prayed and pulled down anointing from the Almighty. And then it looked when she was dancing as though spheres of light and love were coming from her fingers, coming from her toes. And I'll share a story about a time when I feared that I had nearly destroyed the beautiful plants in my yard. That's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. I might sing you a song, too. And we'll have a chat with our friend Stephen Cap Perry from the show In Good Faith about the power of listening to the faith stories of other people. My favorite part is that sometimes I think it's two people who may not have a lot in common until we start talking. And finally, we'll hear a story from our producer, Dr. Brian Tanner, about stepping outside his comfort zone for a musical number at his grandfather's funeral. And of course, my mind went first to my typical grand funeral repertoire. Let's kick off this hour with Geraldine Buckley and a story called Connie Dances. Now, as you'll hear in the story, Geraldine is deeply fascinated by creativity. And it's a highly spiritual process for her, the creative process. And her creative projects have taken her to some unexpected places, like inside the largest men's prison in Maryland, where she served as chaplain. Our terrific studio audience is waiting in the Appleseed Performance Studio. Let's join them, shall we? Thank you. When I was little, I loved to dance. I would twizzle and and jump and leap around the living room and my mother watched me and thought, I think she might have talent. I think she might be famous even. I'll give her lessons. And so I joined with all these other little girls in a class and at the end of the term, we were doing a performance. It was in a theater, so we were all standing the wings and we were going to dance across. And we were all in our best party dresses. So lovely little dresses with lots of underskirts under them, little white frilly socks and and black patent leather shoes. And the music came on, it was Maurice Chevalier, that wonderful old French entertainer singing, thank heavens for little girls. And all the little girls, They started across the stage, twizzle, twizzle, leap, twizzle, twizzle, leap, twizzle, twizzle, leap, and I followed twizzle, twizzle, thump. (laughs) And that's when I realized, and certainly my mother realized, that was not my genre of dance. And unfortunately, nor was ballet, nor was tap. However, I came into my own in the mid-70s with disco dancing. Yes, Saturday Night Fever. Yes! I loved to dance that way. And my parents moved to Spain when I was 11, and I just loved dancing by the side of the beaches and dancing by the side of 
pools. And when I got old enough, I would dance in the wonderful Spanish discotheques that open at 11 at night and don't close till six o'clock in the morning. And there were several occasions when I was the last person out of the doors. I loved it. I would throw my whole passion, my whole self into the dancing, and I would feel as though I was pushing back oppression. And after all, what teenager doesn't feel oppressed? And I'd be dancing down darkness, and I'd be dancing away forward, away forward into freedom. Well, as I got older, I realized that my passion for dancing far outstripped my talent. And so I decided to use my tongue, telling stories and, and speaking, and my pen to push back oppression and to dance down darkness. Well, when I was in my early 30s, I had a Damascus Road experience in a, in a church in London. I fell madly in love with the Lord. I gave up my PR business, went to Bible school, became a minister, and then I got a plum job. At least I thought it was a plum job. This, this, uh, they, this church had a Bible school, and they, they commissioned me to be the uh, director of creativity, the di director of creative ministries, the first time they'd ever had that position. And so my job was to, among other things was to start up a creative school that would go with the Bible school and also to start a theatre. I was so excited. Now, as soon as I got the job, I went off on an already planned mission trip, and it was various churches around London that were getting together and going off, and so I didn't know all of the people. Well, the first morning, I was outside having breakfast, and I was having a little chat with the Almighty. And I said, Lord, I'm so excited about this whole job, but I've got ideas for all the other teachers for the creative school, but I don't know about a dance teacher. I don't know any dance teachers. And I really felt the Lord saying, look up, there's your dance teacher. And in front of me was this woman that I didn't know who was absolutely beautiful. She had coffee-colored skin and long dreadlocks, and she moved with incredible grace. So I went over to her and I said, hello. I said, my name's Geraldine. She said, hello, my name's Connie. I said, do you dance? She said, oh, yes. She said, I'm a professional dancer and choreographer. And so she became the teacher in the school and she was going to dance at the opening of the rose. And when Connie danced, it was magnificent to watch her. Well, uh, during rehearsals, we talked about what she was going to wear for the opening of the rose and she didn't have anything that was suitable, but I knew that I did. So 11 years before this, when I was 21, my mother had bought me this wonderful dancing dress for my birthday. It was a designer dress. It was really a skirt and top, but the skirt was a full circle. It was chiffon, two layers. The bottom was gold and the top was scarlet. It was all hand-rolled. And when you dance in it, it looked as though you were dancing in the middle of a flame. And so we arranged that Connie would wear a black leotard and tight and this, this skirt. And oh, when she danced at the opening of the rose, it was extraordinary. She prayed and pulled down anointing from the Almighty. And then it looked when she was dancing as though spheres of light and love were coming from her fingers, coming from her toes and sweeping over the audience, the congregation. And you looked and if anyone had darkness or depression or hopelessness, these spheres would burst on them and their whole face would change as though they had been given new life, new hope. That's what happened when Connie danced. Well, I knew I was meant to give her that dress, but I thought I won't give it to her until the opening night. And so the opening night came when she danced so superbly and something hit me, something came over me, this pettiness, this meanness, and I thought, no, I'm not going to give her the dress. No, it was my dress, my mother gave it to me. It's a designer dress, it was very expensive, and anyway, I will be able to fit into it again one day. So I didn't give it to her, and not long afterwards, I packed up my, my apartment, put everything down in the cellar, and moved over here to America. And I didn't come back for 12 years until I was going to sell the place. Went down into the basement, and I found the red dress. And I said, oh, Lord, I am so sorry. I know I was meant to give that to Connie. I felt so bad. But I couldn't give it to her. I didn't know where she was, and none of my friends knew. They all knew she'd left the country, but no one had kept in touch with her. So I said, okay, Lord, I'll have it cleaned. I'll take it to my new place in, in America. And the first dancer I come across who loves you and dances in a way that 
Connie did. Now, when I danced, I danced to give me freedom. When Connie danced, she danced to give freedom to other people. And I said, when I meet another dancer like that, I will give her the dress. So I took it, with all my other stuff, to Frederick, Maryland, where I still live. Now, two months after that, I was going up to Canada, a ten and a half hour trip, because I wanted to learn how to heal the brokenhearted. It was a, a, a ministry uh, place in Canada, um, in Ontario, and leaders and pastors were coming from all over the world to learn to heal the brokenhearted. And so I went up there, and on that large, that long drive, I felt something stirring within me, creativity stirring within me. So I have to tell you that in the years that I've been in America, the 10 years or so, I have been doing creative workshops and I've been going from church to church and other places teaching about the great creator and the power of creativity. But it was extraordinary. So many churches didn't get it. I mean, they loved the great creator, but they weren't interested in creativity, even though the church has always been on the cutting edge of creativity. And that creativity has, has inspired people throughout the ages. But I felt as though I had a broken nose in the spirit from running into so many brick walls. And I said, Lord, I'm just giving up creativity. I'm not going to do it unless you make it really clear that I have to do this. I am not doing it anymore. But on that drive to Canada, I felt it stirring again. And I said, Lord, you've got something up your sleeve, haven't you, besides the everlasting arm? <laughs> So I got to the retreat center, and it was the first morning, and there were, it was a beautiful place. It's in 50 acres that is a very thin place between heaven and earth. It is a very prayed-in place and has been for many, many, many years. So I was in the, the large dining room that had these big picture windows, and I was on a round table with some other people whom I didn't know, chomping toast, when somebody said to me, do you know there's somebody else from England here? And I said, oh, I said, how fascinating. Oh, carried on chomping my toast because I've never been particularly fond of the British abroad. <laughs> but then right behind me I heard this really familiar voice and I thought how very strange. Now the person, it was a woman, was sitting right behind me so it would have been terribly rude to have twisted round and looked at her. So I decided at that moment I needed to take in the bucolic beauty. And I got up and I went to the picture windows and it was, it was winter and the snowflakes were gently falling and I, I stared out and then I turned round. And in front of me, with her back to me, was this absolutely beautiful woman with long dreadlocks who moved with incredible grace. And it came out from my toes, I just went, Connie! I hadn't seen her for 11 years. Without turning around, she yelled, Geraldine! And we flew into each other's arms in a very un-English way. <laughs> much to the surprise of all the Canadians and I said Connie I am so sorry I should have given you that dress and Connie who doesn't have an avaricious bone in her body said yes it was always mine <laughs> so I was asked if I would do one of my creative workshops in the middle of this two months course. And so I was delighted. Now it turned out incredibly that my new neighbors on one side were, had already booked to come up to, sing, to, to the, the retreat center because they were known for prophetic pet prayer, really spiritual prayer. So they'd already booked. And the people on the other side had a key. And so I organized that the red dress would come up to Canada for the opening of, of my workshop. And for the first time in 11 years, Connie danced in that red dress. And if you'd have been in the audience, you would have seen spheres of light and love coming from her fingers and her toes out over that congregation, bringing people new light, new hope because that's what happened when Connie danced. Well, at the end of the two months, she stayed behind. She had met somebody, she married them, and I went back to Frederick, Maryland, and I started volunteering in the prison. And I was doing creative workshops. And then I did a few of these for a large group of men, and then I was asked if I would do a two-month workshop, a three-month workshop for 12 men, and that I would work with them so they would come up with their own production. And of course, I was really excited about this. And it was going to be televised on an in-house television system, and they were going to have the local press come in. So this was a very big deal. 
And so um, I, I was surprised by this group of men because none of, them, none of them sang, none of them were singers. Now, I don't sing, but it's really unusual in a group of 12 to not have any. And only one of them played a musical instrument. He played the bongo drums, but several thought they could dance. And so I phoned up my friend Connie, the dancer, professional dancer and choreographer, and she said, of course I'll come down. And she came down on her own dime to teach the men. Now, the men had arranged this production around seven words, and that was the journey from when you're, you first go into a prison. So the first word was despair. When you go into a prison, you feel the most enormous despair. And then time, when you have a long sentence stretching out ahead of you. Acceptance, when that becomes your new reality. Power, when God's power breaks into your life, bringing his truth. And that brings his joy, which will bring his freedom, true freedom, that freedom that comes from the inside out, no matter where you are. They were the words that they came up with. This was a Christian group of men. It was going to be, they were part of the chapel, but they were wonderful words. And Connie came down. Now, before she started teaching them, she danced over these men. She prayed for them and she did it by dancing over them. And when she did, you could see that, that spiritual and emotional shackles were breaking off these men who were so used to being physically shackled because that's what happened when Connie danced. Well, Connie went back to America, back to Canada. So we were in America. She went back to Canada. And not long after that was the production. It was in an auditorium in the prison, and it had two aisles going down to the front. And the men had arranged, they were coming in both the sides, and they did something right at the end that I didn't even know about. And of course, I would have never suggested this. They came in as though they were a chain gang with their hands on the shoulders of the man in front and shuffling as though they were chained. And as they did, they chanted in that style, despair, 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 despair. And as they did, every hair on the back of my neck stood up. And then they, they went to the front of the stage and they went through those words and they put the dance moves that Connie had taught them. And then at the end, we came to the last word and the bongo drummer, he started to play that, that, that drum in a calypso tune so hard and so fast that you would have thought his fingers were going to burst. And the men, they threw their arms in the air and they yelled out, freedom, freedom. And they started dancing up the aisle, freedom, 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 freedom. Well, the head of security had slipped into the auditorium after the production had started. And he was at the back, and he, had taken, he was taking what my grandfather would have called 40 winks. He was having a nap. <laughs> well, as soon as he heard the word freedom shouted, he sat up with a start because he thought there'd been a jailbreak. <laughs> but in a way, there had... Because if you looked at the front page of the paper the next day, there were those men on the front page, arms stretched, yelling freedom. These men had never been in the paper for anything good before. And if you look with spiritual eyes, you could see the anointing that Connie had pulled down from the Almighty, passed on to those men, was coming out over everyone who was reading that paper. And if you'd been in the auditorium the day before when those men were yelling freedom, that, that, those fears of light, that anointing, in some miraculous, odd faith way was going out, not just to the auditorium, beyond that. It was going to their families. It was going to their neighborhood. That freedom was going on and on into eternity because that's the power of the great creator. That's the power of creativity. And that is the incredible power of story. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was Geraldine Buckley with an incredible story about the power of creativity to touch lives. And as you listen to that story, I hope it sparked memories of the people in your life who bless you with their talents. Maybe you know someone like Connie, an artist who brings out powerful emotions as you watch them dance or sing or act. Or maybe it's something less showy, a friend who just 
has a sense of when to send you a text message that'll lift you out of a funk. If this story made you think of someone like that, reach out to them. Tell them how meaningful their talents are to you. You won't regret that you did, and maybe they need to hear it. In a moment, a story about, well, it's a story about yard work, but it's an Easter story, too, and it's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. I'm Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure to have you with us on The Appleseed, an hour dedicated to using the power of great stories to help you make sense of the world and connect with the people who are important to you. And this week, in the run-up to Easter Sunday, we're bringing you an hour filled with what are essentially faith stories from all sorts of folks. And here's one. It's sort of a faith story seen through the window of, well, of trimming the ivy in my yard. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. I've been a storyteller on the radio for the better part of two decades now. And you might think of working on the radio as uh, kind of a community experience. This happy host and his happy fans all enjoying this big radio experience together. But the truth is, when you work in radio, you work by yourself in a dark little booth. You don't hear anyone laugh at your jokes and you find yourself wondering all the time if the work you're doing is really making any difference at all. Well, I first stepped into a radio booth just a single turn of the seasons after I had moved into my first house as a grown-up. It had been owned by Jim and Doreen Hopkins, and they had loved and tended the yard until it was really something remarkable. The house was set back from the road behind a screen of enormous mulberry trees, and up those trees grew green ivy twined and hung from the trunks and spread up and around the picket fence that bordered the property. Rather, it covered the picket fence so that what once had been a picket fence was now more like a wall of solid ivy. The ivy snaked around a goldfish pond. It climbed up the outside walls of the house. And the house was already, before I moved in, sort of a neighborhood landmark. I'd often begin to give someone directions to my house, and they'd interrupt me. They'd say, oh, you mean the Ivy House? Well, yeah, the Ivy House. I love that house. I love the Ivy. But sometime during the first winter I was there, uh, I thought I'd spend an afternoon trimming it. Frankly, I didn't know anything about Ivy, but I thought a good haircut couldn't hurt, so I went to town. Well, I must have gotten lost in thought or something, because when I stood back to look at my handiwork, the yard looked like five days' growth of beard shaved over by a cross-eyed barber with a dull razor. Wiry ivy stems poked out here and there. They were all ragged and brown, and holes in the ivy gaped like open wounds. Before my afternoon's work, our yard had been a page from Better Homes and Gardens, and now it looked like something from The Walking Dead. I remembered the pride with which Jim and Doreen Hopkins, the former owners, had shown me around that yard when I'd bought the place. The ivy they had planted and tended for decades. And I was horrified. I felt as though I had killed a friend of theirs. I sat down on the porch, eyes kind of glazed over, and I imagined what Jim Hopkins might think. And with trembling hands, I dialed his number on the phone. Mr. Hopkins, I said, I think you better come over here. I think I've done something awful, and I'm wondering if there's anything you can tell me. Well, five minutes later, he was in my driveway, scanning the yard for the awful thing I'd done. What's the problem, he asked. <laughs> I pointed over to the yard, barely able to raise my eyes. I think I've killed the yard, I said. And Jim Hopkins threw back his head and laughed. He couldn't help himself. Call me in the spring, he said, and we'll see what you wrecked. He pulled out of the driveway, drove away with a smile on his face, and for the long winter weeks, I walked sheepishly past the ivied yard, 
and it seemed to lie there, looking at me in silence, accusation. I'd try not to look directly at the yard as I walked past on the way to the mailbox, and as such, I almost missed the miracle until it couldn't be ignored. Long about April of the next year, over the course of what seemed about two days, the ivy did just what you'd expect. Lush beds of green, shining ivy, as full as a healthy head of hair. Big green leaves spilling joyfully over the picket fence, running earnestly up the trunks of the big mulberries. It made an enormous impact on me, this coming back to life of my yard, after the death I'd wrought upon it. And I wrote it down as a story to read on the radio at Easter time. Alone in my dark little radio booth, I read that story to tape, and I sent it out, wondering if anyone would hear it, wondering if it would do any good. And that story about the ivy played that Easter, and it also played the next year at Easter time. And that Easter Sunday, I got a phone call. It was a woman I didn't know on the other end of the line. She had called the radio station. They had given her my number. And she told me her name, but I immediately forgot it. And then she began to tell me a story. As it turns out, she had driven up from Arizona that weekend for the funeral service of her mother. And the Sunday family gathering, filled with memories and stories about her mom, had just been too much for her. And she needed some air. She needed some space. So she got in her car and she drove up into the canyons north of town and she parked with a view of the valley. And she sat in her car with the radio on and she thought about her mom. And on the radio, there was this story about a yard full of ivy. And the guy telling the story talked about how he had been filled with hope at the coming back of the ivy after the death of winter. And sitting in her car, this woman had been filled with sweet memories of her mother and a closeness even to what she would have called the spirit of her mother because she knew that yard, knew that yard. I thought, wait, wait, what was your name again? Well, she said, my maiden name is Hopkins. My mother was Doreen Hopkins and she and my dad, Jim, planted the ivy in that yard when I was a kid. It meant a lot to me today, she said, on the weekend of my mother's funeral to hear that radio story and feel like I hadn't been forgotten, like somehow, somewhere, someone was mindful of me on a difficult day and I just wanted to call and say thanks. Well, sitting as I was so often behind that radio microphone in that little booth, and wondering what good I could possibly be doing in the world, I could have said the same thing back to her. Thank you, thank you, how much that call meant to me. We talked for a while in what wound up being a, a pretty joyful conversation. And when it was over, we hung up the phone, each of us feeling less alone in the world. Well, this is a song. It's a song written for family, blood family. A cousin asked me to write it for a family reunion some years ago, but it seems somehow appropriate. In an era when it's easy to feel alone in the world, isolated from some of the things that usually remind us how much like family we are, to play for you a song to remind us how much like family we all are, wherever we are. In a world of perfect strangers spinning round and round and round Well, the eyes of all those people look on by me as I go I'm a dime a dozen, no one on a common piece of ground Just a soul inside a body, just like everyone I know But there's a window in my memory where the light is always on And a doorway ever open and my picture on the sill And a wall of love to lean on Doesn't matter what I've done And my tale, it all began there It's a tale that's running still All about how it feels to have you stand beside me About hearing your sweet voice each time I call And how your love has always been a place to be When I'm broken down 
crippled from a fall Funny thing, it's never been about just me It's all about us all been known to hurt you when I tug against those reins but I'm grateful for the tether that keeps me coming back again because we share a common body because your blood runs through my veins it's a wonder but I need you open up now and let me in into how it feels to have you stand beside me into hearing your sweet voice each time I call When I'm broken down, crippled from a fall Funny thing, it's never been about just me It's all about us all And the faces all get older But somehow we're still the same And I feel a little bolder And it's the reason that I came just to share your blessed name Whatever thing I've done to hurt you Whatever thing you've done to me Whatever drives a wedge between us Whatever keeps us from the sky Whatever doubt you have That says my ship can't get me across the sea Whatever love I've held for ransom Time to up now and let them by Cause it's about how it feels To have you stand beside me about hearing your sweet voice each time I call And how your love has always been a place to be When I'm broken down and crippled from a fall Funny thing, it's never been about just me It's all about us all Oh, it's all about us all Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. We always hope that the stories we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts that you can share with each other around the dinner table or the living room. Have you ever had an experience with the natural world that comforted you, that let you know that the dark times don't have to be the end, that life wins? Or have you had an interaction with someone you didn't know that made you feel connected to something larger? Those stories are worth treasuring up and worth sharing, too. Coming up, a conversation with Steve Perry, who makes his living listening to the faith stories of all kinds of folks from all kinds of traditions. I'm Sam Payne. I'm so pleased to be joined in the Appleseed studio by Steve Perry. Steve is the host of a wonderful radio program called In Good Faith, a program in which Steve spends his time listening to the stories of the faith journeys of other people. Steve, it's such a pleasure to have you with us. And a pleasure for me to be here and talk about my favorite stories. <laughs> and talk about that. Listen, Tell us what it's like to, to do that work. I mean, these are people who have a lot in common with you, but also a lot that's not in common with you, and and it's just two people talking together. My favorite part is that sometimes I think it's two people who may not have a lot in common until we start talking, <laughs> and then I find all the things we do have in common. I, I was thinking of a lady, uh, from uh, Claire Stober. She's part of the Bruderhof movement, mm -hmm. which is sort of a community living mm -hmm. arrangement that they have near Walden, New York. It, she was this huge ad executive in California <laughs> with various companies. And the more success she had, the worse she felt about her life and the less she felt like she was accomplishing anything uh -huh. and had really this sort of crisis of faith and crisis of what a life is. And she tells a story of how she kind of literally put it all down and went to live in this community and found who she was. Wow. And, and found God in that process. Yeah, so yeah. stories like that, because we've all had moments where we think, am I doing the most useful thing I should be doing? Sure. That kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, all of us have. I mean, that we all have in common, right? <laughs> and for Appleseed <laughs> listeners, one of my favorite storytellers that I hear on the Appleseed is Shona Lee. Sure. Shona yeah. Lee Cumber from England. And she is part of this amazing Yiddish-Jewish women's storytelling tradition. She's a <laughs> Drutzilla. Yeah. 
So her grandmother picks her out when she's a little girl and says, you're the one. I'm teaching you these thousands of stories, these oral traditions that preserve the wisdom of our family. In fact, in difficult times like World War II, actually maybe even preserve their sanity, that they had these wisdom traditions they could recite in their mind and to each other. Hmm. We've got just a moment of your conversation with Shona Lee, and we're happy to bring it to you now. This is, uh, again, uh, a, a conversation about this Dritzilla tradition, right? This tradition of learning all of these stories. Uh, here's Shona Lee to tell us about it. It's passed down from grandmother to granddaughter. It is a woman's tradition, so it is an oral tradition because women at the time that it thrived were not taught to read and write, so it had to be held orally. It was passed down within families, but the stories would be told to communities. They were designed to be told to whole communities, to families. And, of course, with the events in Europe in the Second World War, if you were a Jewish woman, if you were an older Jewish woman, your chances of survival were minimal, mm. absolutely minimal. And so a tradition that was thriving in the lowlands, in the Netherlands, as common as the plastic water bottles we're drinking from, and you wouldn't think to cherish those or, or preserve them for posterity because they were so common. And it went in five years to pretty much the edge of extinction. And that sounds terrible, but I mean, we're losing languages every day. But it, it was teetering on the edge of extinction. My bubba survived, and she had already sent my mother over to England on one of the last kinder transports out of, the, out of Holland. And so she had hope. She said, you should always have hope. And one of the other things she would say is... Um, not every story has a happy ending, but it should always begin with outrageous hope, <laughs> uh, which I love. And so she came to England and she was living with my mum and uh, my dad when I was born. And whether through amazing foresight, fortitude, resilience, therapy... I don't know. She said the stories kept her sanity in the camps and allowed her to survive. Shona Lee Cumbers talking a little bit about uh, the tradition of being a Dritzilla, this, this storytelling tradition that was essential to the culture and faith of her family. Steve Perry, thank you for bringing us that that clip of that conversation. Well, there's nothing like a story to draw you in. You guys know this, but um, that's my... Well, that is the part where I find commonality with all the guests I have on In Good Faith is not just say, what does such and such a denomination believe? We don't even go there. Mm -hmm. it'll, come, it'll come out in the conversation, but I say, what is your experience and why do you believe or yeah. how have you seen the divine working in your life? And that's always really exciting when you, when you hear stories. Um, Zayuddin Yousafzai, father of Nobel Peace Prize winner Malala Yousafzai, mm -hmm talks about, as a child, how something in what he learned in his family about faith steeled him against when they came to his school to radicalize him for the Taliban. Huh. Rick Steves, the travel writer on PBS, the guy we <laughs> right. always think, our favorite guy with bad posture. <laughs> but um, I have always wanted to talk to him, and when I finally got to talk to him, we had a, a, a segment called The Road as Church. Yeah, that was yes. his title. Yeah because he wanted to talk about all the things he'd learned from different faiths while doing his travel writing. Yeah. And he talks about one of his first trips, his family takes him to Denmark, to the old country, to meet the, the, <laughs> the cousins. And he's in this park with his family. They're picnicking, they're enjoying each other, and he was just overwhelmed with how much love he felt from his family. Yeah. And suddenly, something kind of from outside him comes into his mind, into his heart, and he looks around at this whole park full of families in situ similar situations. Yeah. And he realizes they all love each other the same way we love each other. 
and God loves all of us. And that was just kind of sort of the beginning of his worldwide view. And it was this kind of spiritual moment that intruded on his family picnic and helped him see something bigger. <laughs> and it's the difference between asking the question, teach me what you believe, and tell me a story about something that happened to you. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and you know, uh, that's kind of a, to me, charming story yeah. that set him on a course of a lifetime. Sometimes they're really difficult stories yeah. because we do need these things to get through the hard times. I, I talked with Rabbi Sam Spector in Salt Lake City, yeah. and, and they deal with a certain amount of prejudice and uh, cantankerousness towards them. But uh, he says two things that come to mind as he was describing his life, his story, and the joy of his congregation. He says, one of the wonderful things about being a rabbi is you get to be part of people's stories, hmm. the joys and the sorrows. And something that has never left me, he said, it is blasphemous to him to fail to see holiness in other people, whatever their background, because they are fellow children of the Creator. Hmm. Now, I have believed that we should acknowledge each other as brothers and sisters, children of the same one Creator, but that idea that he felt it was blasphemous for him not to recognize the humanity in another person. That that actually touched me quite deeply, yeah. and uh, I I will never forget that. You know, so often uh, faith systems can be looked upon as some of the things that divide us, that distinguish uh, yes. us one from another. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and and it, uh, again, it, I know we've mentioned this earlier, but but there's a difference between asking the question, what do you believe? And tell me the story of something that has happened to you. And that's really kind of the business you're in, right? And, uh, and that's the joy of it, yeah. is that, that I come away every time thinking, I I'm a little more hopeful about the whole wide world than I was before we had this conversation because I see God working in your life, in my life, and it, I just see that there's a lot more good happening through the lens of faith than I might perceive from the news or whatever it yeah. might be when I hear people tell the individual stories. And, and having listened to so many stories and having been affected by so many stories, what's the, what's, the, what's the practice that you would advocate for that people could recreate in their homes and neighborhoods? <laughs> Asking questions, you know, not being fearful, but say, um, can, can you tell me, tell me why you fast for 40 days? Tell me about this Ramadan thing. And then you get to know your Muslim neighbors, and then maybe they invite you over for iftar, which is in the evening when they break their fast during the, the days of Ramadan, and, and vice versa. They'll say, how come you guys spend so much time every Sunday? And you explain, well, we have church, and then we have a youth thing, and then we <laughs> – it just gets you talking, asking questions, sincere, good-hearted questions, and you're going to hear good stories. Yeah. A, a, a powerful example of storytelling practice in the world. Mm. Steve Perry, thanks so much for joining us on The Appleseed. Thank you. My pleasure. And to finish off our hour together, we've got a story from our producer, Brian Tanner. If you've listened for a while, you've heard us chat with Brian, and you may have picked up the fact that Brian is a trained opera singer. And as we discussed the theme of this show and listened to Connie Dances, that Geraldine Buckley story at the top of the hour, Brian told us about a special experience he had singing at his grandpa's funeral. And we thought you might like to hear the story Two. Here's Brian. When you're a classically trained singer, you get asked to sing at a lot of funerals. Trust me, I know. And the reason to ask an opera singer like me is because the family is looking for something big and grand to honor the memory of a loved one. Something classical like, Oh Divine Redeemer. Or a sweeping, inspirational favorite like You'll Never Walk Alone from the musical Carousel. And I loved pouring my heart into giving the families the grand moment that they were hoping for. So going big at a funeral was always my impulse. In fact, if I had my wish, not to mention the services of a full orchestra, double chorus, and three operatic soloists, 
This is the music that I'd want performed at my own funeral. That's The Dream of Gerontius by Edward Elgar. And it's not just the size of the music that overwhelms me. It's the majesty of the idea it's depicting. Nothing less than the journey of the soul out of this world and into the presence of God. The Dream of Gerontius came to mind when I heard that my grandpa Tanner had died. My family had asked me to perform a musical number at the funeral— And of course, my mind went first to my typical grand funeral repertoire. The sentiments in those songs were perfect, and they were just my style. I was an opera singer, after all. But they weren't my grandpa's style. My grandpa was a cowboy. There's a specific picture of my grandpa that pops into my head whenever I think of him. He's wearing a bolo tie and a white Stetson cowboy hat that has a little placard on the front with a Winston Churchill quote. Something about the outside of a horse is good for the inside of a man. He owned many horses over the years. The ones I rode as a kid were named Duke and Buster. And Grandpa always had a watermelon rind for me to feed to the horse before I climbed into the saddle. Grandpa continued to own and ride horses well into his 80s. And he even took a mule ride to the bottom of the Grand Canyon at the tender age of 86. My grandma Tanner, married to my grandpa for 70 years, suggested that he would have wanted cowboy songs at his funeral. I didn't know what to make of that suggestion at first. Cowboy songs? At a funeral? Sung by me? (laughs) But grandma's request brought back memories of riding around in Grandpa's old pickup truck, listening to cassette tapes of the old cowboy vocal group, The Sons of the Pioneers. Them tumbling down, their love to the ground. But free I'll be found, drifting along with a tumbling tumbleweed. The Sons of the Pioneers rose to fame during the Great Depression, around the time when my grandpa was in his early 20s. And preparing for grandpa's funeral, it's those cowboy tunes that got stuck in my head. Along with the Sons of the Pioneers, my dad had mentioned to me that grandpa's favorite hymn was How Great Thou Art. And now that song was stuck in my head too. So the funeral began like many funerals, with prayers and eulogies and remarks by loved ones. I sat nervously in the pews as my turn approached. And then it came. I stepped up to the pulpit. The guitar slung over my dark gray suit. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. Using How Great Thou Art as the spine, I'd woven together a medley with two favorite songs from the Sons of the Pioneers. Tumbling Tumbleweeds and Cool Water. I'd even changed out the name of a horse in the latter song from Dan to Duke. Because Duke, after all, had been the name of one of my grandpa's horses. This is not the piece I would have prepared for any other funeral. But working out the medley had actually helped me understand my grandpa better. I think he loved How Great Thou Art for its expression of wonder at the magnificence of the world that God created. And he communed with that magnificence by heading out into nature on the back of his horse. Well, I played my final chord and I sang my final note and I took my seat. I had all kinds of misgivings about the music. Did anyone out there think that it wasn't appropriate to sing cowboy songs in a funeral? But then, my Uncle Don stepped up to the mic. I was doing okay till Brian got up. <laughs> Brian, thank you for capturing just the heart and soul of, Grand- of Dad. 
He loved horses and Heavenly Father. That was, that was beautiful. Thank you. At that point, I just started bawling. I knew what preparing that music had done for me, but I didn't know how the rest of the audience had received it. My uncle's comments confirmed that the message of my song, Horses and Heavenly Father, had been received. As an epilogue to that story, my grandpa didn't live to see me get married or have children of my own. In the final years before he died, he told me how he hoped that someday I might have a son of my own. Well, later on I did get married, and our first child was indeed a son. And when I held him for the first time, I rocked him gently, and I found myself singing one of Grandpa's old cowboy songs. We're alone, Tony Gal, in the wind and hail. Gotta drive these doggies down the trail. I don't know why Dony Gal popped into my head at that moment and became the very first lullaby that I ever sang to my precious child. He's older now, and bedtime songs are a part of our regular routine. And at bedtime, we cycle through dozens of different songs. But if you ask my son what his favorite is, well, he might just say it's the cowboy song. And I love to sing it to him because I can hear Grandpa Tanner in it. We ride the range from sun to sun For a cowboy's work is never done up and gone at the break of day driving them doggies on their weary way we're alone don't gal in the wind and hail gotta drive these doggies Our producer, Dr. Brian Tanner, rounding out this hour with a faith story of his own, a story about singing at his grandpa's funeral, singing cowboy songs. It's been a pleasure to be part of this hour with you on The Appleseed, where great stories change your world. We hope that something from these stories of faith on the show today sparked feelings and memories in you that you can turn around and share with the people that you love. You can find this episode or any episode from our archive on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org slash Appleseed or by Googling the Appleseed podcast. And if you've been listening to today's show on the podcast... Be sure to rate us and leave us a review. It helps people find the show. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed.